Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 321, Athelred, Course Corrections. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Christopher, Sandy, and Francis for signing up already. 992 was a bad year. There was treason, Vikings, the king's closest advisor absconded with half the navy and tipped off the enemy invasion with just enough time to let them escape. And much of this occurred in the south of the country. But that didn't mean the north was being spared. Northumbria, in particular, was taking a beating. In this same year, Elderman Thored of Northumbria vanishes from the record, presumably having been killed while fighting the Danes at sea. The treason of Elfrich left large parts of the English fleet lost or damaged, and many of those ships would have been Northumbrian. And we're told that an Elderman ship itself, which was almost certainly Thored's, was seized by the Danes. This all meant that the Northumbrian coasts were dangerously unprotected. And that was just what happened on the temporal realm. The man who had been tasked with shepherding the souls of the region and maintaining a good relationship with the Almighty had also died on that same year. 992 really was a terrible year, especially for Northumbria. But new years bring new hopes. And maybe, as 993 dawned, there was a chance that things would improve. Except, the world doesn't run off chance. What happens tomorrow is built on the actions of today. And the truth is that the crown had all but written off the north, The king didn't travel there, which meant that the court also didn't go there. All records indicate that his attentions were focused almost entirely on the south. Athelred either didn't trust the north or didn't care enough to put his efforts up there. And in truth, Athelred appears to have just stayed clear of the Danelaw entirely. For example, it wasn't the Kingsford who went to Malden to deal with the Danes at Northey. It was Burtonoth of Essex. And Malden sat within the Danelaw. So it's worth wondering if that played a role in the region being left to essentially defend itself. But regardless of the intent or motivation, the fact was that if the king wasn't mustering his force to go the short distance to Malden, it was unlikely that he would go all the way up to Northumbria. So they were on their own. And as for leadership, it's not clear who was at the helm now that Thored was missing in action and likely dead. If there was a new elderman who was appointed, we don't know who it was. And there's a good chance that that spot was sitting vacant at the dawn of the new year. And really all we can say for certain is that there was a new archbishop. His name was Eldwulf. But you know, who knows? Maybe God would approve of this guy and call off the dogs. Maybe there would be hope for York after all. But to the north, in Bambra, at the edge of the kingdom... Well, things still looked pretty unprotected. Not that Bambara probably cared at that moment. I mean, Bambara might not be as big as York, but it was the seat of power for the old kingdom of Bernicia. They could claim something that no one else could. They were living in Ida's capital. He had ruled there. His sons had ruled there. His grandson Athelfrith had ruled there and had forcibly annexed Deira, forming Northumbria. Bambara was a proud city a historic city, 
and all the citizens of Bamborough would have to do is peer over the city walls and they could see the holy island of Lindisfarne, the place that God had favored for generations. From this holy place had come St. Aidan, St. Findon, St. Cuthbert, St. Cholwulf. All these spiritual titans had called that place their home. And it was right here. Bamborough wasn't just a city with an illustrious place in history. It was the chosen land of God's most favored servants. And while not all of that history was good, after all, the dawn of the Viking Age had begun with a raid right here on that very monastery, and while the threat of Scandinavian raiders rarely had abated, Bamborough was still here. It still endured. And it was there, on a day early in 993, when a guardsman likely looked over those walls as his forebears had done for generations and saw a massive fleet of Scandinavian longships headed straight for them. A fleet of foreign warriors arriving on the shores of Bamborough and Lindisfarne exactly 200 years after that first raid. It must have felt like a return of the nightmares of old, like a sign of the end times. And perhaps it was. After all, whatever defenses the city had on hand were clearly not a concern for the army that was arrayed outside of Ida's capital, because they quickly breached them and sacked the city. We're told the city was looted, with large amounts of Northumbrian treasure and who knows how many slaves being loaded onto the besieging ships. But this was just the beginning. These raiders didn't get all dressed up for nothing, and since Bamborough fell so easily, they might as well continue moving south along the coast and double down on their good fortune. And it's likely that they struck any target that they thought would be worth their time. The Chronicle speaks of the widespread destruction that the fleet left in their wake as they made their turn up the Humber. Northumbria and Lindsay were suffering at the hands of these raiders. And at every stop, the pirates were getting closer and closer to the city of York itself. And as for the crown? Well, the crown was busy. No help would be coming from Wessex, nor Mercia, nor from King Athelred. The lords of Northumbria and Lindsay were alone. And so it fell to the local nobility, to Freyna and Godwinna and Frithogist, to deal with the coming onslaught. And so they called their war bands. They conscripted their firds, and they mustered, quote, a very large English army, end quote, in defense of their lands. And sure enough, before long, the Viking ships came into view. And there were a lot of them. And each one was crammed with warriors. And looking at this sight, the leaders of the great English army, Freyna, Godwinna, and Frithigist, grabbed their weapons and shields, mounted their horses, and got right the f out of Dodge. And the English army followed close behind. And one explanation we're given for this shameful turn of events comes from a man named Florence of Worcester. And he claims that these three nobles were cowards in the face of the Viking threat due to all three being Danish on their father's side. The implication here seems to be either that made them allies with the Vikings or inherently cowardly. Which honestly sounds like the kind of explanation you get from your buddy who just got his 23andMe results on why he still can't lose that last 30 pounds. And this account should probably be given just about as much weight. I mean, Florence was writing over 100 years after 993, and he didn't even have access to 23andMe. The more likely explanation for the abandonment of the field is that the late 900s were simply not the late 700s. 
By this point in their history, the English nobility held their positions due to dynastic aristocracy rather than any particular skill at war. Furthermore, England had been relatively peaceful for a long time. So given these two basic facts, it's entirely possible that these three bluebloods didn't have any experience leading large-scale military engagements. It's also very possible that the great English army that had been mustered were also completely lacking in real experience, or even training. So, they legged it. And with the only hope for organized resistance now running for the hills, the Viking raiders had free reign over the lands bordering the Humber and up the River Ouse. And who's going to stop them? The king? Like, he's ever been all that interested in the Northern Territories. And besides, he was busy. There was a Watanagamot that was being called at Pentecost, and it was going to be an important one. It was being called at the capital city of Winchester, which alone suggests something crucial was being decided. It was also at this Witan where we finally see the appearance of Athelred's sons. Four of his eldest, in fact. Yeah, four. Athelred and his wife had apparently been really busy in between all those real estate deals. So, at this meeting, we finally see the signs that the king was beginning the process of legitimizing his heirs and embedding them in the political culture of England. And that alone is pretty important. But even more so, this was the first Witan to be held since the king's right-hand man, Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire, had betrayed the English fleet to the Vikings and led a mass desertion of the navy, which had resulted in the defeat and likely the killing of Elderman Thorad of Northumbria. And some of you might remember that Norman historians claimed that Athelred's wife was Elf Gifu, the daughter of Elderman Thorad of Northumbria. And if that's true, then the treason of the king's bestie was made extra awkward because it led to the death of his father-in-law. Unfortunately, we don't know what Elf Gifu's opinion on this was or her opinion on anything else. Because Athelred's wife was pushed entirely into the shadows, even more than was usual for West Saxon ladies. That's why we're not even entirely sure who she was. But that treason also made this Witanagamot very important. Furthermore, the timing of recent events also makes this Witan stick out in the record. Because by this point, it had to have been clear that through the land seizures, the raiding of the English shires, and the general abandonment of their duties to uphold the laws and keep the peace, King Athelred, Elderman Elfrich, Thane Athelsiga, Bishop Wolfgar, and Reef Elfgar had just been running the kingdom into the ground. And something was going to have to be done about that. Which brings us to the guest list. Now naturally, all the most important people were there churchmen, nobles, the king's heirs, and of course, the king's inner circle. But they weren't alone. Elderman Athelweird the Chronicler and his son, Athelmar, were also in attendance. And you've heard the Elderman's name before. He was a powerful figure on the king's old regency council. He also came from an extended branch of the royal dynasty. And he was the Elderman of the Western Provinces, which meant that his lands had been recently suffering at the hands of Viking raiders, not to mention the king's neglect. But he wasn't the only member of the old guard present. Alongside Athelweird and his son was the king's uncle, the High Reeve Ordwolf of Devon. And there was also Athelred's mother, the Dowager Queen Elfthrith. And that's huge, because ever since Elfric's faction had seized power, Queen Elfthrith had vanished from the witness lists. 
But now she was back, alongside some of the most influential figures who had walked the halls of power back in the days of the old Regency Council. Shit was about to go down at this Watanagamot. Now, the official stated purpose of this gathering was for the most powerful people of the realm to address, quote, whatever was worthy of the heavenly creator, whatever suited to the salvation of my soul, and whatever was timely for the people of the English, end quote. And that's a phrase that's doing a lot of heavy lifting here. The kingdom was in crisis. And as we've seen over the last several episodes, corruption was so thick, it was interfering with business both big and small. This Witan was meeting to find a solution to the rot that had gone through the supporting beams of the kingdom. And if you remember back, we spoke about corruption as functioning a bit like counterfeit currency. If money is allowed to be debased without consequence, eventually the debased money will drive out the legitimate coinage. And we've seen kingdoms deal with this time and time again. And when they decide to fix it, they don't just incrementally add some official good coins into the circulation that is infected by bad coins. What they do is they recall all the currency, good and bad, and then reissue a new official currency. And that's because when the rules of society have broken down, and once violated norms become the standard operating procedure, you generally need a dramatic course correction to get things back on track. But it's one thing to do that with a currency. How do you fix a ruling culture that's become debased? Well, that's the question that was facing the Witan. Things were getting out of hand, and if the Vikings were any indication, even God was starting to get pissed off. So it looks like everyone knew that they needed to do, quote, whatever was timely for the people of the English, end quote. It's just a question of what that was. Well, it's possible they began this process by codifying one of Athelred's legal treatises. Historians theorize that Athelred's legal code at Bromden might have been first issued at this Watanagamont. But if that's true, it would have just been the appetizer. I mean, issuing a bunch of new rules would only matter if the king and his council would follow them. And this council had already established that they would disrespect laws and traditions whenever it suited their needs. And in their defense, it had been a pretty good run while it lasted. But now they pushed their luck a bit too far and their chickens were coming home to roost. I mean, it had gotten so bad that the king's mom and uncle had returned to court. This was a storm that was gathering around King Athelred, and was being led by his own family members. So upon seeing this, the king did exactly what you would expect him to do. He took all the failures of his reign, all the corruption, the violence, the theft, the neglect, and he laid all of it at the feet of his council. Those lands that he seized from the churches? Yeah, his council made him do it. The lands that he illegally seized from Abingdon and Old Minster when Athelwald died? That was his council too. Oh, and remember when he personally raided Rochester and he stole the bishop's lands? Well, it turns out even that was his council. By a strange coincidence, it turned out that every single unpopular thing that Athelred did was actually the fault of his council. And that he was a victim in this as much as anyone else because, and he really couldn't say this enough, the real villains here were Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire, Reeve Elfgar, Bishop Wolfgar of Ramsbury, and Thane Athelsiga, among others. This was all their doing, not his. And for Bishop Wolfgar, this accusation by the king was no biggie because he was dead 
and he'd been so for many years. But as for the rest of the council, they were very much still alive, and they were in deep trouble. This Witan, which included some of the very same dynasties that had been abused by this council, were no longer being constrained by the king. Instead, the king was urging them on, building distance between himself and his former inner circle, and the council members were completely alone. So the Witan moved quickly against the fallen faction. Reeve Elfgar, the son of Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire, was accused of an undisclosed crime, and it must have been bad. Some theorized that he was implicated in the murder of the king's brother, King Edward the Martyr. Some others think that this was just retribution for Elderman Elfrich's desertion on that previous year. It's not entirely clear what he did, but there is another aspect to this. He was a Reeve. He was law enforcement. So if we're assuming that the king wasn't responsible for the lawlessness of his reign, then someone must have been responsible for not enforcing the laws. And here you had this Reeve. Even better, he was a low-ranked Reeve. So Elfgar was seized, convicted of an undisclosed crime, and sentenced to be blinded. And if that feels extreme for an undisclosed crime, keep in mind that King Edgar, Athelred's father, decreed that thieves should be blinded, have their hands, feet, and ears cut off, their nostrils sliced open, get scalped, and then be left in a field to be devoured by beasts. That was King Edgar the Peaceable. Brutal violence was, by all indications, just part of the Anglo-Saxon state. It wasn't something that Athelred invented. But now we have better records, we have plenty of direct evidence for it. And my guess here is that this was a deliberate effort to reestablish the rule of law and provide an object lesson for the dangers of corruption. So, Elfgar was blinded. Next, the king and the Witan turned their attentions to his father, Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire. The king was quite clear on this point. He was really mad at Elfrich for bribing him when he seized the Abbey of Abingdon. He's even more ticked off that he talked him into giving it to Elfrich's brother, Edwina. Furthermore, Athelred had given it some thought, and he was stunned at how Elfrich had convinced him to give those church lands to various laypeople. It was diabolical stuff that, and the king couldn't stress this enough, was definitely not his fault. And so needless to say, such an abuse of power demanded punishment. But Elfrich's brother, Edwina, had died three years earlier of natural causes. So it's not like they could seize the abbey from him or punish him in some other manner. The only remaining person who was responsible for this, because remember, Athelred was definitely super innocent here, was Elfrich. So he would have to be punished. But he was an elderman. And deposing an elderman directly was exceedingly rare. Once they got into power, they tended to stay there until they died. That whole thing that happened to Oswulf of Northumbria and Elfrich Child were actually really shocking events. And they were shocking events that very well may have been due to the machinations of Elfrich of Hampshire, but shocking nonetheless. And so the Witan may have been hesitant to hand out that level of punishment again. After all, what if someone convinced the king to use that power against them? So the king issued his decree. Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire the apparent mastermind of much of the criminality of this era, the man who had betrayed the English fleet to the Vikings, the man who had likely gotten the king's father-in-law killed, would be censured. Yeah, that was it. 
He'd keep his position. He'd keep at least most of his lands. He'd even be able to go to court. He'd just have to find a way to endure the brutal punishment of being told he was a very naughty boy. Honestly, the only real punishment that Elfrich suffered came via his son. The blinding of Elfgar wasn't just a personal punishment. It was a dynastic one. From the records, it doesn't appear that Elfrich had any other heirs. And blinding is a brutal punishment that, if you survive it, can be used as grounds for disinheritance. But many people didn't survive it. And in the case of Elfgar, son of Elfrich, shortly after having his eyes cut out and possibly burned, he died. During Elfrich's time in the Halls of Power, the crown had carried out attack after attack on the powerful dynasties of England. And now that some of those dynasties had returned to power, they were returning the favor. And with that, the Great Council was over. Elfrich of Hampshire had survived the Watanagamont. But as he rode out of Winchester, he must have been wondering if it had all been worth it. As for King Athelred, well, he was still in power, and he'd managed to avoid any serious punishment for everything that had happened. And I can't tell you with certainty whether he really was as weak-willed and gullible as he would have you believe, or whether he knew what he was doing, and when his back was up against the wall, he just did what most corrupt people tend to do, and flipped, and threw his co-conspirators under the bus. If I had to guess, I'd say it was probably both. King Athelred's reign has all the hallmarks of a frighteningly weak-willed king, who also lacked a strong moral character. And that meant two things. First, what was needed was a societal form of reissuing currency. But at the end of the day, Elfrich was still an elderman, and the king was still on the throne. And with corruption coming from the highest levels, punishing a single street-level enforcer isn't exactly the sort of course correction that was needed. I mean, by all means, punish him if he's guilty. But if you want to course correct and you want to reestablish norms, you have to provide meaningful punishment to the people who are giving him orders. So that's problem number one with the Switan. There was no real check in place to ensure that this wouldn't happen again. Problem number two was due to that failure and due to the apparent weakness of the king, that meant that England wasn't out of the woods yet. They had just traded one faction for another. The king was still being guided by a heavy-handed council. And if some shady characters got in there again, well, we'd be right back to where we started, with nobles manipulating him into taking part in their various feuds and attempting to gain lands through shady means. And that would be terrible. Well, funny story. Later that very same year, Thane Athelsega was at his estate in Dumbleton and some armed men arrived. They'd come at the behest of a member of the king's new inner circle, Athelwina, son of Athelmar, son of Elderman Athelweird. In other words, these were the servants of the guy who now held his old job, and they demanded entry into his home. And unfortunately for Athelsiga, he really wasn't in much of a position to stop them. Once inside, they found some bacon, and they declared that that bacon had come from stolen pigs. And as you know, the punishment for theft is severe in Anglo-Saxon England. It involved torture and mutilation that would very likely leave you dead. So Athelsiga, no doubt realizing exactly what was happening here, fled into the woods in order to escape that fate. 
And what do you think the king did when he heard of the perilous state of his former close counselor and friend? Do you think he came to his aid? Do you think he called off the dogs? No, he seized Athelsiga's lands for himself, and he declared that his old ally was now an outlaw, which meant that anyone could now kill him with impunity. And as for those new lands that the king acquired at Dumbledon, well, now the king had a decision to make. Who should he give those lands to? And now that his old Regency Council was back in power, they had some thoughts on the matter. Oh my God, we're back again. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, where I answer the question of why do I keep using boy bands for the Age of Athelred? And you can find links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. 